Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Tuesday, March 28th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that webpage and click on the Start Here link, the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 18 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that, before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives when they do that, and secondarily because it frequently, not always, but frequently prompts comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, please do so. Give us a call 
if you're on the phone live at 563-999-3581 and press 1 on your phone. That'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number and I'll turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code. You can also send us an email if you prefer not to call in live or if you're listening through the archives. You can email me at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org. And you can email Jeannie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n.org. And if we get those comments or questions or testimonials from you, we will address it during the Internet show and then send you uh, a note about when it was addressed on the show, and you can listen back to the archives to hear the comments or the input. And we hope people do that soon and often because it, aside from being quite useful in people's lives, it also makes it very easy for us or much easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have with this work is to be a service, and that's far easier to do when we get feedback from people like you. So if you're so inclined, give us a call or send us an email. And we will do what we can to be of service. Today's a Tuesday, and as such, that means there will be a support group tonight. We're in our finishing up our 19th year of doing the Tuesday support group and um, there's a group on Tuesday and a group on Thursday since the uh, pandemic they've both been accessible through Zoom and all the information about how you might join us for that is on mindshiftersacademy.org website and please, if you go there, if you're going to refer somebody else to it, um, remember that there's a separate login page for each day. And the information to log in for Thursday is different than the information to log in for Tuesday. It's absolutely free. We would welcome you to join us and or pass that information along to somebody you think might be interested. And we look forward to sharing time with you, working in community to improve our ability to get maximum benefit from these tools. So we have plenty of time for comments and questions. Um, we don't have any pressure today. The second hour today will be a recording, so... I've had a couple things going um, since we were talking last. One of them is the um, doing some more listening and reading in um, a walk in the physical. The book by Christian Sundberg. And the other thing is um, I'm working my way through the book by Laura McGowan, it's her second published book, and it's titled Push Off From Here. And Push Off From Here takes the nine statements that she used 
as her epilogue from her first book. And expands on each of them. And um, she's had she's a, a very bright young woman who um, would have guessed if you asked her about her childhood that she didn't have any adverse childhood events. On the ACEs scale, there's a scale of ten items. ACE stands for Adverse Childhood Events. And there are ten situations. And you're asked in that scale to just give yourself one point for each of those things that has happened in your life that you've experienced. And she says in her book that, you know, when she was thinking about this, she heard about the ACEs scale, she assumed that her ACEs score would be a, a one or a zero. But when she actually learned about the scale and what it contains, her ACEs score is six out of ten. And she was shocked to find out that with a score that high, there's about a 700% higher chance that someone will develop an addictions problem than somebody who has many fewer or none of those adverse childhood events. And that, you know, as you might imagine, just shocked her to her core. The other thing about the ACEs scale is that there isn't any, in, in terms of the correlation with problems later in life, there isn't any greater or lesser degree. So if you have, um, you know, seven or eight ACEs, you have the same chance statistically speaking, of developing these problems later on in life as somebody who has any of the other ACEs at a 5 or a 6 or a 7 level. So let's say you have um, ACE number 1, number 3, and number 7. It's the same statistically as if you have number 2 and 4 and 9. It's not like if you have this one big tragedy in your life, you're going to be more likely to have physical, mental, and emotional problems later in life. It's just one of the ways that it's stated in that study is that trauma is trauma. And traumas that accumulate bring us to a pattern of response to try and survive that that is similar regardless of what some some outside observer might say is the severity of the trauma. One of the definitions that she talks about that she got from an expert when she was researching her book is 
that trauma or addiction, so let me restate that. Addiction would be better off if we called it ritualized compulsive comfort seeking. Addiction is really better described as ritualized compulsive comfort seeking. And that's any addiction, food, sex, gambling, hoarding, whatever, drug, alcohol. So a better definition for addiction is ritualized compulsive comfort seeking. And she says, and and they talk about this in the ACEs study and books that have examined it, that ritualized compulsive comfort seeking is as normal a response to ACEs or adverse childhood events as bleeding is a normal response to being stabbed. It's just going to happen. And it may happen slightly differently for some people who have more intelligence or more adaptive uh, environments and coping mechanisms, and yet it is going to happen. So um, I am not all the way through the book, but I, I thoroughly enjoyed her first book, which was We Are the Luckiest, and this is her second book, Push Off From Here. You may or may not have any interest in it if you don't have any problem with addiction of any kind. But she is talking about her struggles with addiction and what she's been learning over the years in her active work to get healthier, not just to stop using the drugs or the alcohol, but to actively work to build a healthier life. And Push Off From Here is the title of her second book. The other thing that was coming up yesterday was that Susan Bingham was asking about um, the questions section of um, the book, A Walk in the Physical. And... um, The the thing that uh, I would bring up here, Susan was saying that it was quite challenging for her that she felt um, that there's no, I mean, she was thoroughly enjoying the book in parts one and parts two. Um, but when she got to part three and these questions, some of the things that were being said um, were prompting her to think maybe she should throw the book away you know maybe she should discount this person maybe he's going in a direction or trying to get her to believe something that is not true and would be harmful for her that's just my interpretation of what Susan was saying and one of the first things I say when people ask me about a book like this is Please try to remember, every time you approach this, if you're going to have the discussion for yourself, if you're going to read the book on your own, if you're going to have a discussion with somebody else, 
please try to remember that we are using words which are images of images to try and explain something that goes way beyond words each heartbeat. Even between heartbeats, this stuff cannot be contained in words. So please do yourself a favor, unless you just like to argue, unless you just like to butt heads with people and clash over things like this, please refuse to get sucked into arguments over the meanings of these words. Now, one of the ways that I do that when I'm discussing things with people is I say, okay, let's just talk about how this is how it's approached in this teaching. Or this is the meaning that's being used in this particular situation. Not that it's the only meaning, not that it's a right meaning, it's just so we have a common language to discuss this set of thoughts. And um, to whatever degree you're able to put down this pattern, this habit, this urge, this addiction to be right. right. The value of that is woven through all of Dr. Michael Rice's work. That's why every reality management worksheet process says, I cancel my need to be right. I cancel my need to be right. That is so antithetical to our culture and our training that we're going to have to be vigilant and practice applying that thought pattern over and over and over again until we get better at it. And it's it's a new skill, and it's in the... Um, In the context of these old skills that we've been practicing for so long, it's in, in the idea of breaking an old habit and establishing a new one, it's going to take a lot of work. One of the things we, we listened to the other day was an Abraham talk where she was asking, so let's, let's, let's just ask this question. If you're going to try and learn a new complicated skill, do you think you'll pick it up faster or do you think it would be better if you just practiced it once or twice a month here or there whenever you thought about it or would you get it faster and better if you'd practiced it every single day? You can look at that question for yourself. You can derive your own answer. But this is why the Reality Management Worksheet process contains the statement if I'm in pain, my thoughts are in error. And it contains the invitation to cancel my need to be right. So put that in the hopper as you're trying to evaluate if you're listening to us talk about this or if you're actually reading the book, A Walk in the Physical. If you get to the third part where it's questions and answers, if you also feel challenged the way Susan Bingham felt challenged. I would call 
your attention to the Q&A introduction. And here's what it says. What follows is a series of informal responses to a variety of spiritual questions, many of them appearing exactly as it, they were originally asked to me by fellow seekers. The responses are organized by topic. Before we go any further, I would like to reiterate the following two disclaimers. Disclaimer number one, words cannot possibly speak successfully to the nature of many of these questions. I'm going to repeat that. Words cannot possibly describe or speak successfully to the nature of many of these questions. The stuff we're talking about, the stuff we're trying to learn and grow into, the stuff of life itself goes beyond words each new heartbeat. Disclaimer number two, I am a fool, and I certainly do not claim to have all the answers. Far, far from it. I am a flawed and largely ignorant student of life, capital L, life. I am also learning and changing my understanding every day, as we all are. Still, fools can help fools, so I present this content just for consideration in the hopes that it may be of assistance to someone. Now, when I read that, I, I hear a depth of, please don't believe this stuff. Please don't turn this into a religion. Please don't adopt this book as your new Bible. These are thoughts. These are words. These are thought experiments you can try. These are life experiments that you can step into. And over and over again, please hear the invitation, whether you want to accept it or not, hear the invitation to just decide for yourself, to observe for yourself, to be awake and aware in the present moment so that the consequences of the choices you make, the feelings that you generate, the experiences that you have in your life as you live your own life, they guide you, not somebody else's words, not somebody else's dogma, not somebody else's belief system, not even somebody else's experience, because it is entirely possible that you could step into a pattern of thought and behavior that somebody else ran screaming from the room when those thoughts or, or suggestions were made, and you might step into it and find just what you need in this moment. One example of that I used, you know, the example just the other day when this came up is the book Autobiography of a Yogi. And when I was in college and somebody suggested I read that, 
it felt like they were trying to corrupt me, poison me, stab me, derail me, condemn me to hell, whatever it was. It was so threatening to my sensibility. That book and what it contained would have had me question my beliefs. And I was raised in these very well-prescribed belief systems of the Roman Catholic Church. And my both sets of grandparents and my parents and my aunts and uncles and all these people would go to church every Sunday and all these people would not eat meat on Fridays and observe Lent and all of this stuff. I grew up believing this was these are the smartest, these are the most loving, respectful people I know, and this is what they do to live their lives. This must be right. And by the time I got to college and somebody came along and said, hey, why don't we explore how all of that might be hooey? It felt like they were threatening my very survival, my my complete understanding of life. And at that time, it was the perfect thing for me to do to run screaming from the room when people talked about that book. And gradually over time, people I trusted and respected and had deep love and affection for would suggest other books that weren't quite so far out, that were closer to, or that had nothing to do with religion, but they had a philosophical bent, or they had some concept of energy healing or some mild psychic ability. And I would be able to explore those and read those and and gradually over time, my mind expanded. My sense of safety expanded. My ability to question and read and incorporate, integrate these different thoughts expanded. And I could integrate these thoughts, entertain them, and still feel safe gradually over time. So that literally about 40 years after the fact, I read some Michael Singer books, and he said in these books how powerful the autobiography of a yogi, the book by Paramahansa Yogananda was. And I finally said, just a few years ago basically, wow, maybe I should read that book. And I read it and loved it for about the first half or two-thirds, whatever it was, and then I hit a brick wall. And I felt sick to my stomach, and I thought, oh, my God, this is horrible. This is heresy. This is... And I, I knew enough about this work and the reality management worksheet and the EFT tapping and the breath work, and I knew enough about observing how I create my own thought patterns and my own emotional responses and my own beliefs and I put the book down. I didn't throw it out. I put it down, and I did some EFT tapping, and I did some worksheets, and I had somebody do some NET emotional work with me. And when I went back to the book, I could read it with ease, and I could welcome the content and take what I needed and leave the rest and integrate that as a whole. And it was transformative because... It was it was the time in my development where I could expand, I could integrate it, I could consider what was being offered without generating a sense of being threatened. So please, 
consider this invitation over and over and over again as you listen to a Mind Shifters radio show or as you use the worksheet process or the EFT tapping or if you attend a Mind Shifters support group, consider this as just an invitation for you to explore and expand and grow in your own time, in your own way, based on what you can do and gently challenge your comfort zone and stretch and grow only as quickly as you can do so, integrating that work, feeling safe, understanding that the true nature of your existence is that you are totally safe, perfectly safe at all times. Your essence can't ever be chipped, dented, rusted, faded, or broken in any way. And there is no threat except what we create in our thoughts. And one of the biggest threats, and this is one of the big themes in this book, is that we feel threatened anytime our beliefs are challenged because we have identified so thoroughly with those beliefs. Reference the past few times I've talked about this book and I was reading about the ego and the ego's challenges and what it takes to tear down the walls of belief and how it's safe to do so, etc. So, our call-in number is 563-999-3581. We've got about seven people on the call. Plenty of time for comments, questions, specific things you'd like me to address. We're about halfway through our call today, our show today, and um, how is this landing for you? What is this stirring up for you? Call that number, 563-999-3581, and press 1 on your phone. As I mentioned, our second hour today is going to be a replay So we have some flexibility. We can go a little longer if we need to. We can end sooner if we need to. How does it strike you that I'm reading this and this reminder to um, to consider the invitation over and over and over again as you read this book or as you listen to Mind Shifters Radio that all of it is about being of assistance to you as you learn and grow and stretch your understandings and your life experience and that you work to be able to integrate. One of the definitions that they give in... um, in this work for integrating this work is that you no longer feel threatened by it that you that you no longer generate fear in response to it and he gave the example of his father when he was young was terrified of what was in the closet at night in his bedroom 
And it didn't matter how many times other people told him, it's safe and it's all right. His father was torturing himself, worrying about what was in the closet. And eventually, I don't know how long it took, I don't know, you know, I don't know whether he was seven years old or 18 or 35, but eventually his father decided to go open the closet and sit in it. And it was only after he opened the closet and sat in it and nothing horrible happened that his father was able to integrate what everybody else was telling him, that there's nothing harmful in the closet. And as he had that experience, his father stepped out of the pattern of generating fear, and that's the example he used of integrating things. Area code 541, is this Celinda? Yes, it is. How are you, Dr. Tim? I'm doing well. How can we support you today? I was just wondering if you could say one more time the name of the author of Push Off from Here, and we are the luckiest. Laura McGowan, M-C, capital K-O-W-E-N. Thank you. That was McCowan, M-C-K-O-W-A-N. M-C, small c, capital K-O-W-E-N. All right, perfect. Thank you. Arnold. Yes, that really resonated for me, what you said today, or what you shared today about her book. Um, our families were have been rife with uh, with addictions, especially alcohol. Well, one of the reasons that I began recommending the book "We Are the Luckiest" is the same reason I was recommending the book "Untamed" by Glennon Doyle. And that is that these two women, very bright, very creative, very good writers, they both talked in their books very clearly, at least to my eye and ear, about the difficulty and the essential nature of the the essential need to be more and more deeply honest with oneself if one is going to get healthier. And how, you know, each of them had their own stories about how challenging that was and how surprised they were at how difficult it was to be deeply, deeply honest at the ways in which dishonesty, errors of omission and out-and-out lies, small lies, medium lies, big lies, had woven themselves into their life experience and the culture that they lived in. And how critically important it is for anybody who wants to get healthier to be more and more deeply honest. So that's one aspect of each of those books that really hooked me. And I must say, uh, 
as I am already into the second chapter of her second book, she's kept it up. She hasn't abandoned that um, raw, deep honesty. And it was one of the few times in my life that I'd heard somebody sharing at such a deep level where it wasn't, um, look at me, look at how honest I am. And it wasn't just a way to grab attention or be melodramatic. It was just for the purpose of being transparent. And I will say that... Yes, it's already scared some people off of reading the books with just me saying that much, and that's okay too. For some people, that would take a lot of courage. And you started to say, and for me? Well... Maybe I just corrected it and said, you know, for some people that would take a lot of courage. The idea is that I have had people say to me, oh, my gosh, it's so courageous that you share your worksheets on the Internet show or that you would talk about this openly. And I work at being honest about it if I was feeling fearful or challenged, I'll say, yep, I was I was pretty uh, fearful about how this would turn out. But most of the time when people say to me, oh, it's just so brave of you to share that, I say, you know what, it's just not my experience. Um, I have learned over the years that there's only benefit to me to doing this work, whether I do it privately or publicly. And so I don't generate a bunch of fear about what is so-and-so going to think if I do this worksheet, you know, out loud on the Internet show, etc. And so I don't experience the fear. And I understand that for some people it would be terrifying because we each can create our own fears about whatever we want to generate fear about. And I probably have fear and trepidation about this. I have an Achilles heel, but that's not it. (laughs) That might be yours, but it's not mine. Can you spell for me Glennon Doyle's first name, please? I'm imagining Doyle is D-O-Y-L-E. Yeah, and Glennon is just G L E. Double N O N. Oh, very good. Thank you so much. I think I need to leave about. I live about fifty more years, Doctor Tim, in order to to really experience one tenth of what you're offering. <laughs> well, and, and and or a couple thousand more lifetimes, right? Because every day. Yeah. People ask me about things. Hey, have you read this? Did you hear this? I just had somebody today in a previous session say, and so, you know, you know how they talk about Sigma males? And I go, no, I have never heard that before. So I made a note because this is a patient and I'm in an ongoing relationship with this person. And I made a note to look up, okay, what is this new concept about a Sigma male? It just it, It's never ending. This is the kind of thing I talked about probably even just yesterday on the show. 
my learning about myself and my world is a never-ending process. It's not a journey to a destination. It's just the flow of life. It's just a process. That's so interesting that you say that because I have been having experiences with good friends of mine who are um, very uh, uh, deep Christians, for example, or of another faith, and they'll say things like, well, I'm making progress here, or they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, you have to compromise. And they truly believe that. I mean, that's woven within their perception of forgiveness and um, um, worth and, and everything. And, and the idea of original sin, which is taught by some religions. So they're you know they're starting from they're starting from the belief that they're damaged and broken and right. Oh, it's still dismantling that, that belief. It's all tied up with that perfectionism in me and stuff. And it's all tied up with a very wounded human being who couldn't control his impulses. And so he literally lobbied in one of the councils to get the, the... the thought pattern or the belief in original sin codified into the teaching. And who was this person? Pardon? Who was this person? Well, you can, yeah. <laughs> you know the phrase, do your own research. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, I believe it was Augustine. I, I believe it was Augustine, but you'd have to, you know, I, I wouldn't swear to it right now, but I don't know if it was the Council of Nicaea or another one where prior to that, there was no teaching about original sin in the Catholic Church. And, um, you know, he had a history of acting out sexually and not having very good impulse control. And then, of course, he would be very, you know, contrite, and I'm so sorry this happened, etc., so he figured out a way to make it uh, more palatable was to say, hey, we're all flawed and we all make mistakes and then we just apologize and we do our forgiveness work and then we're done. Or the, and the pardoning work in the um, Catholic right, Church of right. um, you know, confession, confess your sins to the priest or whatever, do your penance and, then, and, now, you, and now your path to heaven is renewed. Wasn't there another one uh, like St. John of the Cross or somebody else who uh, was a counterpoint to his position? It seemed like. That sounds uh, sounds very uh, plausible. That well, there was were, yeah, yeah, there, 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 it, wasn't, it wasn't part of the doctrine. And right. he wanted it adopted as part of the, you know, the creed. Yes. I've got to watch them creeds, yes? <laughs> yeah, especially because creed is another word for belief, and we're observing in this work that every time I pour enough mind energy into a belief, I just create more problems for myself, and I literally pull myself out of 
mindfulness, out of being in the flow of life in the moment, out of living by direct observation. So watch those creeds, watch those beliefs. Yeah, especially <laughs> I'm watching them in the political uh, section and the and, and uh, the economic section and everything else as well as the religious ones <laughs> within me, Mike. Within me, Doctor Tim. <laughs> well, is there another comment or question or way we can be of service to you today re- related to? this or anything else we've talked about on this show over the past oh 12 plus years well not at the moment just keep pushing off from here i love it <laughs> thank you i've i feel like i've grown 50 times faster just in the last three years of, of uh, stumbling upon why again and after having heard it on an old uh, um series of cassette tapes a friend gave to me in the early 90s in um, Joseph, Oregon, about uh, why is this happening to me again. And it had to, I had to hatch it for 30 years before I decided I'm going to just find out if what's, what's going on with all that and if it's still around. <laughs> all right. Well, I will mute you so you can listen to the rest of the show in the second half. Thank you so much for the call. Area code 760, you're in the air. Is this Anne? Yes, it is. Thank you. Welcome. Um, Okay, so the things that triggered when you were reading earlier about, and I didn't catch all of the, the name and stuff in the first book that you were talking about, but when she talked about the addictions and the trauma, would be similar to childhood trauma. Is that how you were saying it? Okay. So I didn't quite catch your question. Is what similar to what? And the book um, in the beginning that you were talking about. Um, All right. That, so, one, okay, one, so one, one book I mentioned, trauma. one book I mentioned, yeah. one book I mentioned is, the Walk in the Physical, and we've been talking about that, that here is by Christian Thunberg. Another book I mentioned yeah. is Push Off From Here. It's the second book by Laura McGowan, M-C, capital K-O-W-E-N. Okay. And in her book, especially her second book, she talks about the ACEs study that was done in the 1990s. ACEs stands for Adverse Childhood Events. Okay, that's and this the one. Yeah. Scientific, yeah, this scientific research study did correlations between adverse childhood events and later in life impacts having to do with physical, mental, and emotional problems, even physical problems greater chance of heart disease and stroke and all of this stuff, greater chance of a diagnosable mental-emotional problem, greater chance of addictions, etc. And this is just a very powerful set of correlations between the larger number of adverse childhood events and a greater negative impact physically, mentally, emotionally on people when they're, when they're older. 
So it doesn't prove cause and effect relationship between one particular trauma and one particular disease state, et cetera. But there are very strong correlations, and they are not limited to you had to see somebody get murdered right in front of you or you had to be raped yourself, right? These are a list of 10 adverse childhood events, and people are asked to give themselves one point for each of those adverse childhood events that they experienced. And the more of those that you have, the much higher likely uh, probability that you're going to experience physical, mental, and emotional problems later in life. And she's referencing that in her book. Okay, so that's what it was that helped me to see that I need to do some more work because the addiction that I still work on and have success with for a little while and then go back, fall back into is, is the television, um, but using it to numb out. And I realized that, but I used to think it was, you know, of course, something outside me, which would have been when my husband was here and it was late at night and that's how I got in the habit. No, I already explored that. Okay, but that's something outside of me. But now listening to this again, it reminds me that as a child, my mom divorced, the TV was sort of like my babysitter. And I was like six or seven six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. And so I, I'm, I'm hearing, at least from, from my perspective, that I need to go back and do some wake-up sheets um, more on that because I'd done a few way back years ago. But, um, yeah, anyway, because not some things you've shared before, too, that, and things I've read from counselors and stuff that we as children take on that, oh, it must be my fault. And I was trying to explore those kinds of things, but they didn't really fit. But I don't know that for sure because um, my dad wasn't around a lot. He was in the Coast Guard, and then all of a sudden where when I was in second grade, we moved up to my grandparents, and that's when I finally figured out the other day that that's when the divorce had happened. And mom went up to Iowa from Florida, you know, for that year to kind of gather her thoughts, I guess, and everything. But we still came back to the house that I grew up in. And so um, she must have rented it out or something. Anyway, so I think there's stuff going on with that because I would get so addicted to the Westerns. And I still do that if I fall, if I fall off the wagon, so to speak. I go right to the classics, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, my Rogers and Dale Evans stuff. Anyway, um, okay. I don't know if that makes sense, but I, I, I yeah. Did I you did you that. hear the the definition that she used for addiction that she thinks and the researchers that she were talking to think is a, a more accurate definition for addiction? I need to hear it again. I'll have to listen, re-listen again. But I think that's what. So I'll, I'll, I'll tell you what it is here. It. I'm just going to pull okay. it up so I read it instead of make it up. The um, <laughs> the thing that in her research she found as one of the better descriptions for addiction is ritualized 
compulsive comfort seeking. Yeah, that's what it was. That truly, okay. Ritualized compulsive comfort seeking (laughs) is a normal response to adverse childhood events, just as bleeding Mm -hmm. is a normal response to being stabbed. So whether or not it manifests itself as a full-blown addictive pattern that you or anybody else in your culture would label as as an addiction, whether or not it manifests itself in that way, ritualized compulsive comfort-seeking happens, and it happens more in a more pronounced way the more adverse childhood events we have experienced. Okay. So, and I can see where it's built up because I came across this. And one, the other thing when you were sharing about the, the ACE thing, I just came across yesterday, going through some papers, of, um, one of those kind of things where what it, the different things that happen and it gave points for it. It was a stress um, something on stress, and then you, you know, added up the numbers, see where you were at. And um, that reminds me of that when you were sharing that about her, you know, the different values she put on different events. And it's like, okay, I, I can see the different things that when I, as a child, and then as a teen, and then as an adolescent, or gone up, up the scale, um, yeah where things have just added on, added on. Um, but it just makes sense, that whole thing, the ritualized compulsive comfort seeking. That's, that's good. Thank you. Um, so I'm going to so do some wake-up Because it, it, it doesn't matter what you're using, what behavior or food or substance or person you're using in your ritualized compulsive comfort seeking, it's just much more likely that you'll engage in that in one form or another the more Mm -hmm. adverse childhood events you were exposed to. Yes. And and have you seen in your work or just over the years and and that some of us don't, um, some of us grow up emotionally later in life. So um, some of the events that happened along my way were things that were traumatic that were later, but I don't know. It was still like adding well, but, to that. But, like, yes, but, but please don't, please don't infer that okay. because people talk about adverse childhood events, please do not infer that they are saying traumas that happen later in life are insignificant. That's not what's being said. Okay. Okay, got it. Traumas I have later okay. in life still have a major impact on me. Okay. Trauma is trauma. What they're saying is they did a okay. study that right. really blew the lid off of basically the medical establishments and our cultural experience that said children should be seen and not heard. These kids won't even remember this. They're three, four, five years old. Put them out, knock them out, have a surgery, you know, do the surgery without anesthetic. It doesn't matter. They won't remember it. 
it blew the lid off of that. And it did it in a way that was, you know, statistically irrefutable. But there's nothing in that study that says, oh, you know, once you're out of childhood, nothing is traumatic for you. Yep. Right, all right. I know. Okay. I get that. Okay. Right. Yep. All, all right. right. And anything right. else you. that we can blessings. All right, blessings. No, no, that's all right. I I pressed the button and it took a delay, Anne, before it cut you off, but I got it that you're complete and we're down to our last couple minutes. So I'll remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love and everything else is false. This is your second hour. Welcome to the workshop, Getting the Stress You Need. Tonight we're going to take a little different look at stress and its impact on our lives than the way the culture usually looks at stress. And we're going to start to identify how stress is created and the role that it plays in our lives and how absolutely necessary stress is. Because without stress, there wouldn't be life. If you didn't have the stress of thirst, you wouldn't drink. And without that signal and not drinking, you'd die with the lack of water. Uh, if you didn't have the stress that comes from the feelings of sitting on the tack, you wouldn't get off of the tack. So those stressors are necessary. And we find that there are two different qualities of stress, one of them constructive and one of them destructive. And we want to look at exactly how those stresses are created, exactly how the mind produces stress, so that we can take charge of that process. A lot of times our culture is set up in a way that creates stress in us, or at least that triggers stress in us. We're trained into those stresses, and we find ourselves thinking things that we'd rather not think, saying things we'd rather not say, doing things that we'd rather not have done, and not realizing why that is. And I'd offer that the reason why we say what we say, why we do what we do, is because we have stressors that promote and create those behaviors. What you'll find ultimately is that the human mind is a stress management device. The human mind, you know, there are theories that say the human mind, you know, does what it does to protect its ego and do all sorts of things. And in reality, what it does is it very, very well manages stress. And we'll see that there are different states of mind that you can come from in managing your stress. There are two states of mind in which in attempting to manage stress, you will find that you continuously increase your stress. Your behaviors will produce more stress. And then there's a frame of mind, a state of mind, in which your mind can accurately guide you to reduce your stresses. And we'll look into some ancient teachings and how they referred to that process of managing your stress. Has anybody here got someone in your life that if they would just be different, if they just change, everything in your life would be wonderful? Anybody have someone like that? Okay, so we've got lots of yays on that one. Well, have you ever, in trying to avoid that person, has anybody ever taken the geographic cure where you go to the other side of the country where people will be different? And then the person that picks you up at the airport finishes the sentence that the person that dropped you off started, and there's your stressor again. 
What's the game? What's happening here? Well, as you understand how this mind is managed, and we're going to come from some ancient, ancient teachings in looking at this process of producing stress and reducing stress and managing the mind, and what are the laws that govern that process. I'm going to ask you if you'd allow yourself, if you're at home watching this video or if you're in the audience here, I'm going to ask you for a moment if you just kind of get quiet. Go inside of yourself. And in getting into that quiet space, I'm going to invite you to go through a series of feelings. So if you would just kind of close your eyes, go inside. And I'm going to ask you first to allow yourself to feel sadness. Would everyone do that? Let yourself feel sadness. Notice as you feel sadness, what happens to your breath. And then I'm going to ask you to shift from sadness to fear. Let yourself for a moment feel fear. And then I'm going to ask you to shift once more and allow yourself to feel anger. And then, once more, I'm going to ask you to shift into feeling intimidated. Notice where your breath is and what's happening with your breath. And then just open your eyes and come on back to our workshop. Does anybody feel more stressed now than you did five minutes ago? Is anybody experiencing any more stress? Hands going up, head shaking. Okay, great. All right. So how was that stress created? What did you do to feel each feeling that you just felt? Anyone? What did you do? Okay, so you created some pictures of situations. What did you use? I'm going to invite you to identify what you used to create those pictures. What did you use? Used my memory. Used your memory. Okay. But there was something in your memory that you used specifically. What was it? Do you, do you have an insight into that? Okay. But to get to what bothered you, what did you do? Okay. You imagined. How did you access what was in your imagination? Okay. You felt it. But what did you do to get to the feeling? You had a thought. You had to think about it. You had a thought. Now notice the impact of thoughts on your physiology. Now, we just did this little two-minute experiment. You had a series of feelings. Whose feelings were you feeling? My own. Your own, okay? First thing established. <laughs> Whose thoughts caused those feelings? Your thoughts caused your feelings. Now, think about that person that if they just change, everything would be different. And kind of key into 
the situations you just went to and the, the feelings that you have and the stress that you feel. And how many find that the feelings that you have match, in just this little off-handed exercise, match what you felt in relationship to that person who you said earlier, if they just changed everything, your life would be wonderful. Do you see a match there? Okay. Who's the common link in producing those feelings? Who's there every time it happens to you? No, couldn't be. <laughs> well, I have some good news and some bad news. <laughs> there's only one problem in your life and you're it. That's the bad news. <laughs> Fortunately, there's a solution. The, pro the solution lies within you as well. And as you recognize that you're the one that's there every time it happens to you, I mean, think back in your life. Yesterday, last week, last month, last year, ten years ago, if you experienced any of these feelings, whose thought had to be resonating, had to be firing in you to feel those feelings? They had to be yours. Now, if tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, or ten years from now, whose thought has to be resonating in your energy field for you to feel those stresses? has to be your own. How many expect to experience emotional turmoil like that at some point in the future? Why would you do that to yourself? <laughs> I would offer there's only one reason. You're insane. <laughs> we have been taught in insane, insane thought structures in our culture. We've been taught to live in those insane thoughts. And we have those thoughts stored within our structure and not understanding that those thoughts are stored within our structure, we produce stresses within us right down to and including the cellular level as a result of the thoughts we think. If you go into the opening words in the book of John in the New Testament, and, and we're going to look not at the English translations that we usually see. We're not going to look at Greek sources, which are far far removed from the original Aramaic, we're going to actually go back to the native language that those teachings came from. And what you find is in that Aramaic language, and, and the Aramaic language is the root language of five of the world's major religions. And what you find in that language is practical, here's how life works teachings, not theological religious dogma. You find tools for living life. And if you go to the opening words in the book of John, we're generally told that the, the opening words say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. Well, actually, in the Aramaic language, what it says is, in the beginning was the mind energy, and the mind energy became flesh. Your mind energy becomes your flesh. And if you put mind energy into your system that doesn't belong in your system, you are going to experience the effects of a negative stressor. If you deny responsibility and don't see that you're the one that was there every time it happened to you, then you will think that that stressor is someone else in your life. But you'll notice once again, if you've been through that particular stressor 87 different times with 42 different people, you are the one that was there every time. You are involved in your life. And what shows up in your mind tells you more about what's in your mind than it tells you about what somebody else outside of you is doing. 
And so if you look at those feelings, those feelings come from your thoughts. And your feelings are molecular. Your thoughts are molecular. Your stressors are molecular. There's a woman named Candace Pert, who is the uh, former head of the Brain Bio Research Unit at the National Institute of Health. And here's what Candace Pert says. And you'd almost think that she was peeking at the book of John when you hear this. Here's a medical researcher at a laboratory that says, every thought we think produces a molecule in the body. And the quality of the molecule matches the quality of the thought. Your thoughts produce molecules in your structure. And then if you go to the cell biologist laboratory, the cell biologist will tell us that those molecules, which are called neuropeptides, travel throughout the system. And where the cell has a receptor site for those neuropeptides, the neuropeptide, that molecule that is produced by your thought, lands on that receptor site. And once it lands on the receptor site, once the cell picks it up, the cell replicates that energy structure within itself. And what you find is that every thought you think produces a result within your structure. And the results that you feel the effects of are the results that you've allowed yourself to think. And the molecules that end up floating around in your structure, landing on the cell and producing cellular stress, always come from you. They can't come from anybody else. And as you take responsibility for that, in fact, if you go to the, uh, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount, we're told there's a beatitude that says, Blessed are they who mourn their wrongs, for they shall be comforted. Now, I don't know, has anybody here ever gotten really excited about mourning your wrongs and felt really comforted as a result of it? It's a bit of a stretch for me. But if you go to the Aramaic language, what it says, first of all, the word blessed are they isn't there in the Aramaic language. There's no word that resembles that in Aramaic. What the word in Aramaic is in that beatitude is tuvehun, and tuvehun is a three-part word. And basically what it says is this, is that a latent or an unconscious neural structure implanted by God to guide you to happiness and well-being becomes your conscious possession, you who, and then where it says, we're told it says comforted out of the Greek translations, it says you who look into your errors in thought. And then, it doesn't say you're going to be comforted. What it says in Aramaic is, you will be cured of mental stress. When you start to look into where your mind goes that produces the molecular structure that ultimately becomes your genetic structure and is passed on to the next generation, if you want to change that process, you've got to take responsibility for every thought you think, which means every molecule you put in your structure, which becomes literally a part of your cellular structure. 2,000 years ago, this man named Jesus, who was not a religious teacher, he was teaching how life worked, said, hey, you want to clean up your act? You want to clean up the stresses that are going on within your structure? Here's a key. Look into your errors and thought 
and clean them up. And when you do, you will be cured of mental stress. It's up to you to decide what you do with that. You can't count on somebody else in the world to support you in doing that. You're going to have to make the choice as to how you run your mind and how you run your life. It isn't up to somebody else. But oftentimes, because we don't understand how our stresses are created, it appears that it's run by somebody else. So what I'm going to invite you to do now is I'm going to invite you to pick a partner. If you're at home uh, and you don't have someone there listening to this tape with you, I'll invite you to get a mirror out, and that will be your partner. And so I'm going to ask each in the audience, if you would, to pick a partner. And sit face-to-face -face with your partner, if you would. Now, if one person in each partnership would say, I'll be light, just to identify yourself, so you've got a name. And one person in each partnership would say, I'll be peace. So we've got light and peace. We've got two partners. And I'm going to ask you to do an exercise of sending and receiving. You're going to get to send in doing this exercise, and you're going to get to receive. So I'm going to give instructions for both sides. What are you going to do when you're the sender? Then what are you going to do when you're the receiver? And then I'm going to ask one of you, and we'll give you instructions then, as which one will start. When you're the sender, I'm going to ask you to get quiet, go inside, and find the deepest, quietest, most powerful love that you can. Eyes closed, shut down the visual stimulus. Find the deepest, clearest love that you can. Intensify that. Don't start yet because I've got to give the receiving instructions too. So intensify that love. And as you intensify it and can feel it flood your structure, then I'm going to ask you to open your eyes and send it out through your eyes to your partner. Okay? So that's what you're going to do when you're sending. Now the receiver, we're going to ask you to, of course, keep your eyes open while your partner gets ready and prepared to send. And when they send, we're going to ask you to check out what, if anything, they're sending. So imagine that your partner is squirting water out through their eyes. And so you're going to check out the temperature of the water. So I'm going to ask you to take the palm of your hand, place your awareness there, and pass it across in front of their eyes between you. So it's going to pass, right, between you and the person who's sending. And be aware and feel what you feel on the palm of your hand. And then, so that you have a second reference point, you've checked it out with the palm of your hand, we're going to ask you to do exactly the same physical action, passing your hand between yourself and the person who's sending, and only this time we're going to ask you to put your awareness on your face, just so you've got a second reference point to check out how what they're sending feels to you. Are there any questions about the sending and receiving, about what to do when you're the sender, what to do when you're the receiver? Anyone have a question? No? Clear? Question, okay. When you're the sender. You open your eyes and then direct the energy out through your eyes to your partner. Yes. Okay. Question. Just to them. To them. You're going to be looking eye to eye, so you're going to send it to the, just to their face, what have you. Yeah. Okay. Great. 
and the receiver is going to pass the hand and check out what, if anything, they're sending. Okay, we're going to ask you to just have a second reference point. So you've got reference point one, the surface of your hand. So you're passing it between the person who's sending and just see, again, imagine they're squirting water on there. What temperature is this water? And then, so you have a second reference point, let the energy come to your face and just shift your awareness from your hand to your face. Do the same physical action, pass it between you and see if you notice anything different on your face. Just shifting your awareness from one place to the other. Okay. So light, would you send first? Okay, so light, if you'd be the sender. And as soon as you're complete, just reverse roles. Peace, you become the sender. Light, you become the receiver. If you're at home watching this video, do it in the mirror with yourself. See what you experience. Of course, preferably there's a partner there you can work with. Did anybody notice anything? What happened? And if you would just speak loudly enough, we've got a microphone here. You might even move up toward the microphone and share what you experienced. When I was receiving, I didn't feel anything until he smiled a little bit. And then there was this sort of feeling of heat. Okay, so you found a shift as soon as he smiled. That's when you started to feel. And, and it felt like just a line, like a band of heat. Okay, great. Anybody else experience it differently? 
You can feel the warmth on your hand. Okay? Joy. So you went into an emotional uh, response. So you felt joy. Okay. Not on purpose. It was just there. Great. Okay. So you could experience it on your hand as a pressure. Okay. All right. Anyone else experience it differently? So you could feel an energy of some kind on your hand as well as warmth. Okay. Warmth and tingling sensation. Okay. Now let's let's look another level. Is there anybody who's noticing a difference in your stress level right now from five minutes ago when you were focusing on those other feelings? It seems like the smiles are much larger at this moment than they were a few minutes ago. So you're noticing a difference. What do you notice? Okay. You found it relaxing, felt good. Okay. Anyone else? Okay, so you went from happy and to, to happy and exciting. Okay. Did anyone have any fatigue a few minutes ago whose fatigue level has changed? Yes. Most every head shaking, yes. Okay. Go ahead. What did you experience? Okay, so your whole arm was able to feel the sensation. Yes. I, I bet my whole body would if you, you know. So you could feel it all over, yes. physically. Okay. Your face definitely looks different than it did five minutes ago. Oh, yeah. Thank you. Good. Feel yes. Okay. Great. Anyone else? When I went in as a receiver, the instructions you gave were to uh, find that place of, you know, intense love. Right. But I noticed uh, when I first went down, I, I ran into some obstacles. You had obstacles to go through to get to that feeling of love. Yeah. Okay. And, um, before I could really, you know, be with that, I had to kind of move them out of the way. Okay. Great. Good catch. <laughs> Good. Wonderful. So you have an assignment now, and your assignment is to do this exercise twice a day for the rest of eternity. <laughs> and that's with another person, and then to do it with yourself twice a day in the mirror. And if you have any body image problems, do it with yourself twice a day in the mirror in the nude. And watch how things start to shift and change. Notice the difference in your stress level. This is the master stress reliever. Notice the difference in the way that you feel. Now, if you go back 2,000 years ago, they asked, you know, what's the most important thing in this thing called the law. And what the master said was, there's a condition of mind that you've got to create in order to be sane. Of course, I'm paraphrasing at this point. But there's a condition of mind that you've got to create before you do behavior. And when you start to see that that condition of mind is the key to intelligence, and, and you see how the mind operates in that regard, it is mind-boggling. It is amazing. 
And so we want to look a little bit at how stress is created. What, it, what did you do to create the stress that you just experienced? And notice that you had a stress that went in the, in the direction of behavior. You'll find that the end result of stress, generally speaking, is some form of behavior. Or non-behavior, which is also a form of behavior. There's a, a psychiatrist who used to work with people who were catatonic. And his specialty was getting the catatonic out of that catatonic state. And of course, the catatonic is a person who just sits and they're just, they're so stressed out, they don't respond to anything. They're gone. And this fellow says that he never, in, in the technique that he used, he never had to get above the knee in order to take this people, these, these people out of their catatonic state. And so here's what he'd do. He's working with people who are hospitalized. Maybe you're aware of what a hospital gown is like to be in. And here you are sitting in a chair in a hospital gown. And what this fellow would do is he'd sit in front of the catatonic and tell them, I know exactly what's happening for you, and I'm going to help you to get out of this catatonic state. And he would reach down and he'd pull a hair out of their ankle. And then he'd move up about an inch, and then another inch, and another inch. Said he never had to get above the knee. <laughs> now, what he did, perhaps knowingly or unknowingly, when you start to look at stress and how stress creates behavior, what he did was that he took advantage of an unconscious goal that people have. And in triggering that goal, and again, you don't have to let your imagination wander too far to recognize what that goal is if you're sitting in a chair, catatonic, in a hospital gown with somebody pulling hairs out of your leg working up to your knee. You know, it's, it's a pretty deep level goal there for most people. And we're going to see that goals are the key to stress. That when you set a goal in your mind, that goal creates stress. And that goal creates behavior. And we're going to look at how the process of goal setting works and how the mind operates and why it was so brilliant of this man named Jesus 2,000 years ago that said that the first requirement of the law was to hold a space of love when you think of God, of neighbor, and of self. Basically, what he was pointing out is the three major objects of attention for a human being. And what he was saying was that if you're going to set a goal in regard to any of those objects of attention, if you're going to go into any form of behavior, you better have the condition of love in your mind. And, and it's interesting to note that in the Aramaic language, there are 17 different words that have been translated with one English word, love. Now, if he knew what he was talking about, it would seem like it might be important and useful to know which word he used and what that word meant. Well, in the Aramaic language, the word he used was the word rachma. There is no similar word or concept or idea in the Greek language nor in the English language. There isn't a word for it. But that condition is that word rachma is a condition in the mind. It is a condition of holding literally a filter 
in our minds over intentions. And when you start to see the chain of action in the mind when a stress happens, all of a sudden, it just shines a line of brilliance on this man saying that the first law was hold rachma, hold the condition of love in your mind. And so, I'm going to draw a diagram. And this is a human head pointed in that direction, just in case you don't recognize it. And what we'll find is that in the frontal lobes of the brain, all of our intentions are stored. So we have this pool of intentions. And in the back of the brain, we have another pool. We have a pool of perceptions. So we have these two pools in the mind. Over each pool, there is a filter. Actually, there are three filters, three sets of filters. Over intentions, there is a fear filter. There is an hostility filter. And there's a filter that in Aramaic was called Rachma. It's been translated as love. But more specifically, is a filter over intentions. And then what we'll find is that there are also three filters, and this is being verified at uh, Tulane University bone implant EEGs. They're finding with these bone implant EEGs three signatures coming from the brain, one that they've come to identify as hostility, one that they've come to identify as fear, and one that they've come to identify as love. They're documenting it medically. And so we have over this pool of perceptions a fear filter and hostility filter and another filter that in Aramaic was called Kuba, which has also been translated. It's one, another one of the 17 words that's been translated as love. You say, well, okay, that's interesting, but so what? Well... What you'll find is that your intentions are the raw material of your goals. Intentions are the raw material of goals. And so the quality of your intentions determines the quality of your goals. And there are three qualities of intentions that can come out of this pool according to the filter that is set. If one filter is active, the output of the other two is blocked. So whichever filter is operative in your mind will determine the quality of your intentions, your available intentions. And so, if we have the fear filter active over intentions, what we'll find is that our intentions will be of a particular quality, and that is they will be negative. 
If the hostility filter is the active filter, then our intentions are going to be of a destructive quality. And if our Rachma filter is active, our intentions are going to be of a loving quality. Why would that be important? Because it is your intentions that ultimately lead to and drive behavior. Your intentions when converted to a goal. Let's look at how an intention can be converted to a goal and drive behavior. I'm going to ask you to cooperate with me if you would. And I'm going to ask you to imagine that out in front of you, about three feet in front of your face, there's a red sponge ball. Okay? And I'm going to ask you to reach your hand up and reach for that ball. And at about the halfway point in doing so, I'm going to ask you to change and decide without changing the intention or the goal to reach for the ball, decide to pull your hand back away from it. Okay, so holding the intention, I'm going to go for the ball, and then about halfway there, I'm going to pull my hand back and just see what happens. Give that a try. What do you notice happening in your arm? Okay, you can't do it unless you change your intention. Okay, what else? Anybody notice anything about your arm? Tension. It's tight. It locks up. You look at people in our culture and you look at how their bodies are tense. Some people almost like rocks. And what you find is you've got conflicting goals happening. And when there are conflicting goals, conflicting chemistry takes place, conflicting behavior. Reaching your arm out to grab the ball is a behavior. Letting that behavior continue while changing and pulling away from it creates a conflicting chemistry in your structure. Your mind energy changes your chemistry. Is there anybody here that knows how to reach out and, and grab that ball? Is there anybody here that knows how to do that? Okay, you sure? All right, we have a man who says, I know how. Would you please explain to me? First of all, I want to know which brain cells have to fire in what part of the brain and then which nerve pathways they follow to which muscles and what exactly are the balances and counterbalances to raise your arm and reach out to grab the ball and close your fingers around it. Could you explain that process to us? <laughs> Not likely, right? I mean, the truth is we don't have a clue how to do it. We do it. We do it, but we don't know how. Something in us knows how. Something in us follows instructions. Very important. You remember this guy 2,000 years ago said, of myself I do nothing. The Father within me does the work. We don't have a clue how to do this stuff. If it was left to us, it would never happen. But you set an instruction in place and you've got the cooperation of the creative power of the universe within you, working in you and through you. And if you give it conflicting instructions, you're in trouble. And if you give it destructive or negative instructions, you're going to have a problem. And so the quality of intentions, we have this whole pool of intentions. 
The quality of those intentions determines ultimately the quality of our goals and therefore our behavior. Because as we trace this through and we go to the next step, what we're going to see is that our goals are the driver for the output of our mind, of our reality. And so to become aware of how this whole process operates, you see that the starting point is key. Now, why is it important what our pool of intentions is and which quality of intentions we bring forward? Well, our intentions are those things which are converted to goals. Goals drive behavior. I can remember when I was a kid being told this thing of the road to hell is paved with good intentions. It's like, what does that mean? I mean, does that mean you're not supposed to have good intentions? No, it doesn't mean that at all. What it does mean is that you can have all the good intentions in the world, but if you don't convert them to goals, they will never impact your behavior. So we take an intention and we convert that intention to a goal. Now, today most people are somewhat familiar with computers. And let, let's take a look at the computer as a model for what's happening with these goals. The computer operates based upon the drivers that are loaded in the computer. For instance, if you want to see a picture on your screen, you have to have a driver for your screen. If you change to a different monitor, you're going to have to load a different driver. If you've got an IBM Pro printer hooked up to your computer, you need to have a driver in your computer that knows how to communicate with that printer in order for any output to happen. There has to be a driver. If I change from an IBM Pro printer to an NEC silent writer, I have to load a new driver in order to communicate with that NEC silent writer. Well, in precisely the same fashion, you have to have a driver for behavior. You have to have a driver for the realities that your mind outputs. And the driver is the goal that you hold. The quality of the goal is of key importance. You can't get a high-quality goal out of a low-quality intention. So the pool of intentions are of utmost importance to how you're going to behave in your life. Now you go back and you hear this man 2,000 years ago that says, first order of business for a human being. If you think of God, if you think of neighbor, if you think of self, the first order of business is you've got to hold this condition in your mind. Now let's, let's do a practicum on, on goals driving behavior and how that happens. Once you set a goal, the quality of the goal determines the quality of the filter that filters your perception. There's some Harvard statistics that tell us that in a time frame where 10,000 brain cells fire, that is there are 10,000 units, measurable units of electrical activity, that in that same time frame, the reality that we experience, the output of our minds, that which drives our behavior, is made up of a maximum of nine bits of information. Very small select 
bit of information actually shows up in your reality. And the information is selected and organized according to the stresses created by your goals. If you don't ever elevate an intention to a goal, you won't have a stress that will move your behavior. And basically what we'll find is stress, to define it, is this. Stress is a difference between the way we want it to be and the way we perceive it to be. Or the way it is. The difference between the way we want it to be and the way it is. And sometimes the way it is is just the way we perceive it. They're not necessarily the same. So let's use the example I used earlier of the tack. If I sit on a tack, I experience a stress. I want comfort in a certain part of my anatomy. <laughs> and the way I want it to be is not the way it is. And so I go into action. In order to do what? Alleviate the stress. And so my behavior becomes the mechanism that balances what I want and what I see. So I have a goal, it's what I want, and I have a way that I see what's happening in the world, and that's what I see, or that's the way it is. And if there's a difference, the degree of difference will be the degree of motivation I have to act. So let's take that now into a practical example. Let's imagine that you had heard about this workshop happening tonight and you decided that you might want to come to it and you wanted to bring some friends. And let's imagine that you've got one friend on each, that lives on each side of you. You know, their driveway is 50 yards down the road from yours on each side. And you meet those two friends, you say, hey, you know, tomorrow night there's this workshop called Getting the Stress You Need. I'd really like to go and see it. Would you like to come with me? And one of the neighbors says, well, you know, actually, I was thinking about going to the movies tomorrow night, so I don't know whether I'll do that or not, but, but you know, it sounds like a good idea. It sounds like an interesting topic. I'll, I'll think about that. I think I might go. And by the way, if I don't go, you know, there's a really good movie playing. How would you like to join me and we'll go to a movie? And you say, well, you know, I was really wanting to go to that workshop, but, you know, I did want to see that movie, so let me think about that. And the third neighbor's standing there, he says, well, gee, you know, uh, I'd like to go to the workshop or to the movie. Okay, well, I'll, I'll think about it too. So you now have three people, each with two intentions, movies, workshop. Now, this afternoon rolls around and you decide to pick one of those intentions. It's going to be either the movies that's one intention, or the workshop. You decide to do one or the other. Now, obviously you're here, so you decided, you set the intention, you convert it to a goal, you set a goal to be here. So notice that the way you wanted it to be was to be at the workshop. Your reality was you weren't there. <laughs> And so, what did that goal bring forward from your perceptual memory and from your mind? It brought forward a reality that gave you a set of instructions as to how to get here for this workshop. That's the only way you got here. 
If you hadn't set the goal, you wouldn't be here because your mind would not have motivated you nor shown you how to get here. Now let's, so there we have the workshop was elevated from an intention to a goal. And therefore it became the reality that drove your behavior. Now, your next door neighbor decided, I don't think I'm going to go to that workshop. I want to do the movie. And so a different intention was converted or elevated to a goal. And his intention that he converted was to a goal was to go to the movies. Now, his driveway was just 50 yards down the street from yours. He drove out the same driveway perhaps at the very same moment that you did. But he's not here. Why not? Because he had a different intention that he converted to a goal. And his mind organized the units of perceptual memory that he had much differently than yours. And his mind showed him how to get to the movie theater on time for the movie. That is, if his goal system allows him to be on time. <laughs> Maybe he was late. Who knows? That last-minute dash to the movie syndrome. Okay? So he went to a totally different place. He got totally different instructions from his mind. His reality was completely different from yours. For one reason and one reason only. He had a different goal than you did. And... The way he wanted it to be was at the movies, and he wasn't there. So what did his mind say? I know how to alleviate your stress. Here's how we get to the movies. We come out the driveway, and we drive in the other direction. We don't drive in the direction of the workshop like the neighbor did. And he's sitting watching a movie right now. Because his behavior reduced his stress. It fulfilled the way he wanted it to be. And so when you start to see that whole mechanism operating, then you see that for a human being to do any behavior, if you think about the Creator, if you think about God, and there is any behavior to be done, where would you want to start? Where is your highest and best reality going to come from? Is it going to come from a mind that's in fear? Not likely. If you go back and you listen to this man 2,000 years ago, he spoke about fear as a demon to be cast out. He knew exactly how this mind operated. He knew far more about how the mind operates than we even start to comprehend today. And he treated this as a demon to be cast out. You remember? Perfect love casts out fear. You know what perfect love is in the Aramaic language? Perfect love is Rachma and Kuba set in the mind. And what he was essentially saying is, if you want to eradicate fear from your life, you've got to set those two filters and you've got to be responsible for keeping them set. Now you might have a pool that has different intentions and different perceptions in them. And someone comes along and triggers those intentions and those perceptions and you find yourself with Rachma and Kuba gone from your mind and being in hostility or fear. 
And if so, then the behavior driving realities that come forward, you have a reality formation system within your mind and the behavior driving realities that come forward will be based on what goals are resonated in your mind. And if that person can resonate in you fear, the intention from fear will be negative. The reality that comes forward from a fearful intention will cons be constructed in a way that shows you what is threatening. about the object of intention, God, neighbor, or self. So you have in you, in your pool of perceptions, brain cells that hold information about threat. And if that's the active filter over intentions and perceptions, then your mind will structure a reality that shows you something threatening about God, about neighbor, about self. If the hostility filter is the one that's set, you'll get a totally different quality of reality. The reality that will come forward from the hostility filter will always show you what is irritating. About the object of attention. If Rockman Kuber is set, your mind will always show you something loving about your object of attention. Now, again, let's take that into a practical realm. Let's imagine you have this person in your life that is the love of your life. I love you, I honor you, I cherish you, I will love you forever. Now, your mind is showing you in your reality lots of things that you love about them, but what happens when they give you the look? You got anybody in your life that knows how to give you the look? What does that look do? Does it resonate a different filter in you? If it resonates fear in you and you are not in charge of your own mind and you don't understand the first law of governing in the, the mind, then what's going to happen is your goals toward them will be based upon negative intentions. And in setting those negative goals, what your mind is going to show you is something threatening about them. Now, how many have had it happen? They give you the look and all of a sudden it's, don't touch me, don't come near me, I never want to see you again. Like, wait a minute, how is this possible? A moment ago, this was the love of your life. How do you convert to? How do you switch to? They're the same person, you're the same person. What changed? The only thing that changed was the active filter in your mind. And now, you have a pool of intentions that show you threat, and your mind builds your image, your picture of them, your reality about them, out of that pool of perceptual memory. And they show up in your mind as threatening. Whose job is it to do something about that? Yours or theirs? Whose thoughts produce the chemistry, the stresses in your mind. I would offer it's only you. You're the one that's liable for how this whole process operates. If that person resonates in you, the hostility filter with the look, 
then what will happen is you will all of a sudden be irritated. Now, let's, let's look at that one in a practical sense. How many have heard the story? You know, we've all heard stories about the you know, little five-foot-two woman who had this six-foot-nine gorilla of a husband who always beat up on her and abused her. And so every time she looked at him with the fear filter active, what did she feel? What did she experience as the reality in her mind? She saw her mind selected evidence that showed her what was threatening about him. But we've all heard it said that one day something cracked in her mind, right? Well, you know what cracked? She shifted from fear to hostility. Now, when you shift filters, when you move out of fear, you no longer, your mind will no longer produce a threatening reality. And the minute that hostility flipped in and she went to destructive intentions and therefore her mind showed her what was irritating, she went to a different pool of perceptions. And stored there was all the information she held about being in irritation. And now she is really peeved. And you don't want to get in her way, do you? <laughs> and neither does he, even though he's six foot nine. Because he's in trouble. And the only difference is that she flipped from one filter to another. What the Master was telling us 2,000 years ago is that if you always want the highest and best output from your mind, you keep perfect love active in your mind. Fear is not possible. Hostility is not possible. What you will find is the store of intentions and the store of perceptions will always show you what is loving about the object of your attention. Well, does that mean that I just have to lay down and I've got this neighbor that's, you know, I'm, you're talking about neighbor here, I've got this neighbor that's going to attack me, I just lay down and let him attack? No, it doesn't mean you passively accept abuse. But what you do, especially if you've got a neighbor that's about abuse, is you want to have the most intelligent, the highest capacity mind possible to see what can be done in that circumstance. Which mind is that? I would offer it's going to be the mind of love. That that's going to give you the best evidence possible. If you've ever been in a courtroom and you've watched the opposing attorney go after the defense witness. What's the first thing they do? They get them either into hostility or fear. Why? Because at that moment they're stupid. They make mistakes. And so recognize that. The Greeks had this saying that whom the gods would destroy they first make angry. Why? Because we'll destroy ourselves if we're in anger. This produces chemicals that are stressors in our cellular structure. The neuropeptides that land in the cell that generate the chemistry inside the cell is up to us. First law, keep the condition of love in your mind. Let's take an intermission.